0: Hey friends, this is Lance. What you're about to hear is an essay entitled Machiko Uehara, U.S. Citizen, and you will learn who that is shortly. This was actually the first bonus episode for Don't Call It Nothing family members, but I knew I wanted to eventually add it to the general feed and maybe even add it to YouTube. Anyway, considering that today is the 80th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, it seemed like an appropriate time to release the episode into the wild. One thing I like my bonus episodes to do is maybe put a different spin on the podcast. In this case, the details are both biographical and autobiographical. So as you take in the details of the story, it might explain why I have such little patience for the white counterculture and their inflated mythology of heroic self-sacrifice. In fact, let's start in the late 60s. Today's story begins in La Habra, California, a middle and working class enclave at the north end of Orange County, where I was born in August 1969, the son of a Japanese Hawaiian mother and white father. I spent my first seven years in La Habra, which at the time was mostly white, but there was definitely an Hispanic presence, not much Asian. Now, up the hill on Euclid Street and above Las Positas Elementary, which was where my brother Craig went to school, that was where the two-story houses were with their huge tree-lined streets. Down where we were on West Parkwood Avenue, just off Imperial Highway, there were lots of perfectly cute one-story ranch houses and not much in the way of status symbols. At least, I didn't notice, and I was like five or six years old. If there were shiny objects, I was going to notice. However, in June 1976, I moved to Huntington Beach, a coastal fantasy land dominated by insulated white people whose insatiable pursuit of status symbols definitely wasn't masking deep-seated insecurity. We moved to HB so my brother and I could live in a safe neighborhood, wink, with good schools, double wink, and as I got older, I resented my parents, especially my mom, for moving me to this Aryan wasteland. Why especially my mom? Because my dad was a selfish dick. He was a degenerate gambler and narcissist, so that he wasn't paying attention was on brand. Unless I was riding a horse he bet on, I'm not sure he was going to notice me or my brother. Now, for the record, my dad and I worked it out, and I enjoyed our final decade together. He passed away in 2013, a fact for which I'm now exceedingly grateful Because within a few years, that entire side of the family came down with a terminal case of Trumpy crackeritis. My mom, though, was smart, capable, and beautiful. I couldn't figure out what the hell she saw in my dad, and I sure as shit didn't know why she wanted to live around these empty white people and their statusy bullshit. I could never figure out, for example, why we weren't living in Hawaii, where she was born. Living in Orange County just reeked of assimilationist nonsense. However, that word assimilationist needs to be cracked open. What I was too young to realize was that Asians assimilated in post-war Southern California for very good reasons. They weren't making lifestyle choices like most contemporary Asians. They were making survival choices. Now, I knew about the internment camps at a very young age. Mom made sure I knew about Manzanar. She made sure I knew about the 442nd Regimental Combat Team and 100th Infantry Battalion, the Gopher broke Japanese-American badasses who are still the most decorated combat units of their size in U.S. military history. What Mom never told me, though, and the facts were classified for close to 75 years after the war, meaning long after her death, was that she and her family were interned for the duration of the war. It wasn't a camp. It was Hawaii. For some reason, when people think of Hawaii during World War II, it's Pearl Harbor and then nothing. Hawaii is a postcard, not a real place. And if it's not a real place, then it doesn't have real people. Well, my mom's family saw the smoke from Pearl Harbor from the roof of their home. Lots of people know people, or were people, who experienced 9-11 up close. How many people do you know who experienced Pearl Harbor directly? And while you're pondering that, ponder this. In the same way everyone thinks about 9-11, but rarely thinks about the legal implications of 9-12, Hawaii went into martial law on December 7th, 1941. Most people, myself included, don't fundamentally understand terms like martial law, let alone internment camp. We know these are bad things, but they're abstractions. In an article published on January 11, 2017, Wyatt Olson details life in Hawaii under martial law, and as I read through a section of his essay, it's only fair you know the name of the leftist rag publishing his remarks. It's called Stars and Stripes. Olson writes, Immediately after the attack, Joseph B. Poindexter, Hawaii's territorial governor, declared martial law, and National Guard members took control of the cities. It was believed that the surprise attack was just the prelude to a full-scale invasion of Oahu, and the military and citizenry set about fortifying the island for such an onslaught. But martial law was also a reaction to the perceived threat By the presence of roughly 150,000 Japanese and Japanese Americans living in the territory, which represented about 35% of the population. Freedom for Hawaiians was severely curtailed by the suspension of constitutional protections in order to, quote, discourage concerted action of any kind, unquote. That was said by the military governor at the time, which I think was a different person than the territorial governor, Poindexter. Those rights remained suspended for almost three years and were reinstated only after numerous challenges in court. A strict curfew barred anyone from being on the streets between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m., and people of Japanese descent had to be in their homes by 8 p.m. Everyone older than age six was fingerprinted, registered, and required to carry military-issued identification cards. The military maintained intelligence reports, on a vast number of Hawaiian residents. Newspapers required licenses to operate, and no publication was allowed to be printed in any language other than English. The telephone company was commandeered by the military, and all mail was read and censored. Islanders were ordered to construct bomb shelters. Nights were dark during that period because a blackout order required all civilian lights, whether bulbs or flames, to be extinguished at nightfall. Doors and windows of residences were required to be covered, and car headlights had to be painted a dark color to dim them. Martial law ended October 24, 1944. In 1946, the Supreme Court ruled that the suspension of civilian courts had not been justified by law. And that's the end of the section. Again, that's Wyatt Olson. The name of the article, Exhibit Details Martial Law in Hawaii Following Pearl Harbor Attack. And that was in the Stars and Stripes, issue of January 11, 2017. Now, raise your hand if your mom was fingerprinted and registered as an eight-year-old enemy of the state, lived behind barbed wire, was subject to strict curfew, and saw her brothers, friends, and neighbors forced to build makeshift bomb shelters. What Olson doesn't include is that gas masks were also issued to all Hawaiian civilians over the age of seven, and drills were regularly run for poison gas attacks and air raids. Food was rationed. Liquor was banned. And in a move that feels particularly egregious, military officials reviewed and confiscated any photographs that contained barbed wire, beaches, or military bases. Those last few facts come from a 2016 Huffington Post article entitled Forbidden Photos Reveal What Life in Hawaii Was Like After Pearl Harbor. And I will link to all of these in my transcription, as well as put up some photos, which are unsettling, to say the least. Now, in the U.S. government's defense, martial law in the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor was not only defensible, I'd even say it was responsible. Like any crime scene, you have to do your investigative due diligence. If there were Japanese co-conspirators, we'd need to know. But you know how that turned out. There were never any co-conspirators, which means there was a point where martial law stopped being about protection and became what it's always about, white control. If you're a kid, any age is bad to be seen as a suspect, If someone thinks you stole a pack of gum and you didn't, you're going to be upset. Imagine being eight years old and you're branded a suspect by an entire nation and already exist in the shadow of its military apparatus, much of which was just destroyed by people who look like you. Does that feeling of being a suspect ever leave? Isn't some part of you forever behind the barbed wire? I think about my mom, born Michiko Uehara but going by Jane because it was less threatening to Howley's. Was that even her choice, or was she told she was Jane? I think about her moving to Colorado, of all places, to attend the University of Denver in the early 1950s. The story she told me was that there were three Janes on her dorm floor, so she renamed herself Billy after Billy Holiday, which is a flex on multiple levels. But as a 52-year-old grown-ass man... I now read that story much differently. If my mom was white, i get it. Oh my God, Jane, I'm Jane. Have you met Jane? Look at us bonding. Real talk, I know my mom changed her name to Billy because she didn't want to give them white bitches any reason to call her Jap Jane. Bigots are gonna bigot. You just don't need to toss up alley-oops. What 16-year-old me couldn't possibly have known, because my mom quite understandably didn't want to talk about any of that shit, was that assimilation was her only way out. Can you blame any Japanese of her generation for assimilating? When it comes to hating minority groups, white America doesn't need much persuasion. But the intense brutality of the Japanese in the Pacific theater inspired a very intense hatred of the Japanese on the mainland. Who do you think bore the brunt of that hatred? It's one thing to assimilate by choice. It's another to assimilate under duress as a survival tactic. Thus, Michiko Uehara, U.S. citizen, became Billy Jane Davis, non-threatening, white-on-the-phone American. I only knew my mom as Billy Jane Davis. To white America, maybe even to my mom herself, her assimilation was complete. Michiko Uehara was gone, erased. Billy Jane Davis won out. Only that's not how it works. There's an old saying that lives in my head you're not just the age you are, you're every age you've ever been. Everything that's ever happened to you lives inside you. Machiko Uehara was never erased. She just lived deep inside my mom where no one could reach her. No one could ask for papers. No one looked at her like a suspect. That's why my mom didn't move back to Hawaii. It was never going to be the howly tourist destination of my immature imagination. It was forever going to be the place where an eight-year-old girl was forced to make peace with that barbed wire. As I write this, my youngest daughter Lucy is only a couple months younger than her maternal grandmother was on December seventh, 1941. When we're eight, we cannot conceive that the world as we know it will suddenly disappear. There's no way to prepare for a sustained aerial attack, or a church bombing, or jets flying into buildings, or white terrorists storming the U.S. Capitol. There's a before, there's an after, and nothing is ever the same.